Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Welcome back to Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross, and today's episode is one I've been working on for a while. I told you all in last week's episode I'd be doing this in two parts, but I was able to package today's case and interview into one action-packed episode. Let's go. If you're familiar with the infamous Zodiac case, the case that's been described as the most famous unsolved murder case in American history, then you probably know Paul Avery. He was portrayed by Robert Downey Jr. in 2007's Zodiac film. Paul was an investigative journalist with the San Francisco Chronicle who fearlessly covered the killings and, as you'll hear, became intertwined in the investigation. At every turn, Paul Avery was there tracking down leads. The case became even more personal for Paul Avery when he himself was targeted when the Zodiac wrote to him. The Zodiac had never called out anybody by name until October 27, 1970, when the calculated killer mailed a Halloween card to Paul at the Chronicle. The card read, From your secret pal, I feel it in my bones. You ache to know my name. And so I'll clue you in. But then, why spoil the game? Happy Halloween. The card contained the phrase, Peekaboo, you are doomed, in an apparent sinister and veiled threat towards Paul. Also, on the rear of the card had the word paradise written, and was crossed with the word slaves to form four quadrants, where the Zodiac placed the wording by fire, by gun, by rope, and by knife. On the front of the card, added to the decorative skeleton's hand, was the number 14, possibly inferring that Paul Avery was to become his 14th victim. Here's a clip of an interview with Paul Avery from October 31st, 1970, just a few days after he received that card. Don't you think you're going to start looking over your shoulder once in a while now? Oh, very definitely. I, as I say, I think it's an idle threat, but, uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm no fool. I'm going to be very careful. The, the, uh, there was a conference with the police department uh, and a discussion of possible uh, police protection for me. Uh, it was finally decided that this, uh, you know, at this time at least, is unwarranted. If, if somebody takes a shot at me, that'll be a, a different case, but... At this point, there's no need, we don't feel any need for protection. To the world, Paul Avery was a reporter, but he was also a husband and had two young daughters at home during this entire terrifying ordeal. One of those daughters is Kristen Avery, and I had the privilege of sitting down and speaking with her. We've emailed and texted over the past couple months, and last week I got to talk to her about her father, Paul Avery, the Zodiac case, and how it all went down. But before we talk with Kristen, let's go over the Zodiac case. It's important to know what was going on at the time Paul Avery got onto the scene. The Zodiac murdered five known victims in the San Francisco Bay Area between December 1968 and October 1969. He targeted multiple young couples and a lone male cab driver. Miraculously, two of his attempted victims survived. 
The Zodiac claimed responsibility for murdering 37 and has also been linked to other cold cases in Southern California. The Zodiac originated his name himself and really enjoyed taunting the media, police, and the public through letters and ciphers. To this day, the Zodiac case remains unsolved. There have been many theories about who the real Zodiac is, and at the end of this episode, we'll see what you think. The terror started on December 20th, 1968 on Lake Herman Road near Vallejo, California. David Faraday, 17, and Betty Lou Jensen, 16, went out that night on their first date. At 10.15 p.m., David parked his mom's car in a gravel turnout which was a well-known lover's lane for locals. It was shortly after that that the two were shot and killed by an unknown assailant. A woman found their body shortly after 11 p.m. and called police. The Solano County Sheriff's Department investigated, but there were really no leads. Many in town and those who knew the innocent teens were terrified and wondered what kind of monster would do this. No one had any idea that this was the work of a serial killer. Six and a half months later, the next attack. On July 4, 1969, in Vallejo, California, Michael Majot, 19, and Darlene Farron, 22, another couple, went out for a date. In an interview, Michael Majot said that night, Darlene picked him up. Shortly after that, he said they began to notice that they were being followed and chased by a car, so Michael suggested they pull over and park. He didn't tell police this that night, but he said that later they were being chased big time, in his words. They drove into Blue Rock Springs, a lover's lane, and were sitting in the car when that same car drove up into the parking lot and parked alongside them. The car then quickly drove away. Michael said he asked Darlene if she knew who this was, and she said something to the effect of it was a friend of hers and not to worry about it. He was just jealous. It appeared Darlene knew the man that was following them that night. He said she didn't get specific about who the person was, but Majot remembers something about a Richard and said Darlene mentioned something about him having a mean temper, and if he found out certain things, he would kill her. Ten minutes later, around midnight, that car returned and parked behind them this time. The driver got out of his car and then approached the passenger side door of Darlene's vehicle. He had a flashlight and a 9mm Luger. The killer shined the flashlight in their faces and then began firing. He shot them five times. Several bullets passed through Michael into Darlene. The killer began walking away, but then heard the moans of Michael. He returned and shot them both again and then drove off. Just a short time later, at 12.40 a.m. on July 5th, a man called the Vallejo police and reported the attack. He claimed responsibility and also took credit for the murders of Jensen and Faraday. The two crimes were only mere minutes apart. This part is even more haunting. The operator said the man signed off with a bone-chilling, almost melodic, goodbye, and then hung up the phone. The call was traced to a phone booth at a gas station in the area. The couple was found. Darlene Farron was pronounced dead at the hospital, but Michael Majot miraculously survived the attack. Michael said the killer was a white guy, six feet tall, average looking, not good looking, not bad looking, had short brown curly hair and was wearing glasses. He said he was 26 to 30 years old, 200 pounds, maybe even more. He said that when the killer walked up to them initially, when he shined the flashlight in their faces, he thought it was a police officer. Michael also said that he wanted to marry Darlene and felt like he should have saved her. On August 1st, 1969, the Zodiac prepared and sent three letters, one to the Vallejo Times-Herald, one to the San Francisco Examiner, and one to the San Francisco Chronicle, 
where Paul Avery reported. The letters were nearly identical. The writer took credit for the shootings at Lake Herman Road and Blue Rock Springs. He provided information only the killer would know. Each letter also included three different codes, which the killer claimed contained his true identity. The writer demanded that these ciphers be printed in newspapers or he would, quote, cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. Editors were torn whether to print the killer's correspondence or not. If they did, would they just be giving in to his demands? But if they didn't, would they have blood on their hands? The San Francisco Chronicle ended up publishing its third of the cryptogram on page four of the next day's edition, and it turned out that the threats the killer made were empty. No one was targeted by him that weekend, but all three parts of the coded cipher were eventually published. Just days later, the San Francisco Examiner received another letter. This time, the writer opened with, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. This was the first time the killer had used the name Zodiac to identify himself. On August 8, 1969, a couple in Salinas, California cracked the 408 cipher, and this is what it read. I like killing because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and those I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for afterlife. It was becoming very obvious to the media, police, and the public that the Zodiac was enjoying the attention he was getting. He liked toying with the media. As the Zodiac's confidence was building, the time in between attacks was decreasing. He was becoming more active. The next month, on September 27, 1969, Pacific Union College students Brian Hartnell, 20, and Cecilia Shepard, 22, went out for a picnic at Lake Berryessa. That's a large lake in Napa County, California. Brian and Cecilia used to date and remained good friends. The two were sitting there relaxing and enjoying conversation when Brian noticed that Cecilia was becoming distracted. Her eyes were glued into the distance. Suddenly she said, I see a man over there. The man was staring at her. Brian said he didn't think much of it at the time and continued to talk and relax. She then said he went behind a tree. A few moments pass when suddenly Cecilia's face drops as she sees that man reappear and tells Brian he's got a gun. Brian turns to see a man walking briskly towards them. The man had a gun, a knife, and was wearing an executioner-style black hood with clip-on sunglasses. He also had a black dickie with the Zodiac logo on his chest. The hooded man approached, the couple frozen. He told them he was an escaped convict from jail and that he needed money to travel to Mexico. The killer told Cecilia to tie up Brian with pre-cut plastic clothesline he brought. She tied Brian up and then the Zodiac tied her up. Brian thought that this was just a strange robbery. He said he was trying to engage the hooded man in conversation the whole time and thought that if they just complied with his demands, the man would leave. But suddenly, the killer began stabbing them both repeatedly. The killer then left the two, made the trek back up to the parking area, and drew a Zodiac symbol on Brian's car door. Beneath it, he wrote, The dates of all three killings followed with, By Knife, written below the September 27th date. 
At 7.40 p.m., the killer called the Napa County Sheriff's Office from a payphone to report his latest crime. He said he wished to report a murder, no, a double murder. The payphone was found still off the hook at a Napa County car wash on Main Street. Police lifted a still wet palm print from the telephone. Sadly, Cecilia lapsed into a coma during transport to the hospital and passed two days later. Brian survived and shared the details of the terrifying attack to the police and press. He described the killer as 5'8 to 6 feet tall, heavy set, at least 225 pounds, with dark brown hair that he could see through the hood's eye holes. So at this point, we have multiple different attacks from the Zodiac, all couples on dates or in lover's lane type areas, so police are noting the killer's M.O. But then, two weeks later, something unexpected happened. On October 11th, 1969, just before 10 p.m., a white male passenger got into a cab in San Francisco, California. The cab driver was a man named Paul Stein, and the passenger requested to be driven to Washington and Maple Streets in Presidio Heights. For unknown reasons, Paul Stein drove one block past Maple Street to Cherry Street, maybe at the direction of the passenger. But then, Paul Stein was shot once in the head with a 9mm handgun. The killer took Stein's wallet and car keys and tore off a bloodstained section of Stein's shirt. The killer was observed by multiple witnesses across the street, and they called police while the crime was in process. They said they saw the killer wiping down the cab before walking away. Two blocks from the crime scene, patrol officer Don Falk and officer Eric Zelms were responding to the call and were on their way over to the scene when they saw a white man walking alone up the sidewalk. The encounter lasted 5 to 10 seconds, but they didn't stop him as the police radio dispatcher had alerted officers to look for an African-American suspect. So there are a couple different accounts about the mix-up. I read a few different reports that said the reason they put out that alert was because one of the witnesses ID'd the man as being an African-American male. But that mix-up is debated, and reportedly, the whole thing was just pretty chaotic. After it was clarified, Officer Falk and Officer Zelms gave a description of the man that they saw. They described him as just sauntering along. He was a white male, 35 to 45, 5'10", with a crew cut. A search ensued for this unknown man, but he was never found. Originally, police thought that the Paul Stein crime was a robbery gone bad. At the scene, they did find a bloody fingerprint in the cab. But on October 14, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle received another letter from the Zodiac, and this time, the killer included a piece of evidence. Along with the letter was the swatch from Paul Stein's shirt. He also said in another letter that the fingerprint found was actually planted by him to confuse police. The Zodiac had struck again, but this shocked police and the media. He had changed his M.O. He wasn't just going after young couples anymore. Now they feared anybody could be a target. Around this time, a Zodiac task force was created. The Zodiac later wrote a letter that confirmed it was him who those police officers saw that night. He said the officers actually stopped and spoke with him only minutes after he shot Paul Stein. Then they watched him walk away and disappear into a local park. 
They didn't know it at the time, but Paul Stein ended up being the last confirmed Zodiac victim, although he claimed responsibility for 37, and the Zodiac's focus really shifted on communication at this point. He sent more letters and more threats, he targeted school children, and the taunting continued. The Zodiac really seemed to get off on that attention from the media, and as every day passed and no suspect was caught, tensions ran higher and higher. Within the police departments and media, everyone was scrambling to investigate and catch the elusive Zodiac killer. One of those people was reporter Paul Avery. Paul Avery and his family moved back to California in 1969. Their family had been living in Vietnam, and they settled back in Novato, California, which is in the Bay Area. The Zodiac killings had already started when Paul Avery got onto the scene. Paul was a seasoned journalist and had been working for over a decade at this time, and his work in this case has become a part of history. Frank McCullough, a colleague of Paul's, said Paul was from the old breed of reporters. The guy was never happier, never complete as a human being until he was on a big, tough, long story. He lived for that, and he did them superbly. He wrote about the case without fear. Dozens of articles were written about the Zodiac with Paul Avery's name right there in the byline. He would often even give jabs at the Zodiac. See? Fearless. Paul worked closely with Dave Toschke, a homicide detective, and they were both extremely committed to the case. But was the Zodiac reading Paul's work? Well, it became obvious that he was. On October 27, 1970, the Zodiac killer did something that he had never done before. He called out someone by name and a correspondence. The letter was addressed to Paul Averly. He actually misspelled Avery, which, as an Avery, I find offensive. But the Zodiac had a way of misspelling certain words in strange ways. I feel it in my bones, you ache to know my name, and so I'll clue you in. The card read. Police got Paul Avery a gun permit and other reporters in a way to try to make light of the situation and protect themselves wore buttons that said, I am not Avery. From the public standpoint, Paul Avery was just a journalist. Someone on the front lines that would report what was going on around town a trusted voice that could give the citizens information to keep their family safe. But during this time period with a Zodiac target on his back, Paul Avery had a family of his own. As the Zodiac was threatening school children, Paul had his own little ones at home that he had to look out for. Paul was Kristen Avery's dad, someone that she described as magic, a man who would make up endearing bedtime stories that went on for weeks and months. Kristen was only 11 years old when her dad began covering the Zodiac case. She tells us what it was like when her family read those creepy Zodiac letters at home. Mark came, and I think it scared us all a little bit. You know, I know it scared me. You remember the scene in the movie where um, it is uh, the guy that wrote the book, is the cartoonist, that he's showing that card to his family. Right. And I said, that happened at our house. That scene... It was exactly like our house. I don't know if he did it with his kids. No, he wouldn't have had kids back. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, he was, he was my dad's age, a little bit younger. So I, it just surprised me. That was like, we didn't get that in the scene. Robert Downey Jr. should have been sitting there with you know whoever was going to portray my mom. Here's Kristen on the fear that she felt after her dad received that personalized card. I, we lived in a subdivision in Novato that um, we were at the very last street. And my best friend, Carol Simpkins, lives right across the street from us. And behind her, it was all uh, undeveloped land. 
So we had, you know, California didn't have very many trees, but the few trees it does have, um, it was, you know, there's rolling hills, you know, that didn't have any grass really much on it, tree here and there. One of the kids had built a fort. And occasionally I would go back there when nobody was home or, you know, something I would have everybody to play with. And I went up there a couple of times on my own and just got so scared. And I got out of there so quick because it was the woods. You know, he could be anywhere. And if it wasn't him, it could be somebody else, you know. Shortly after Paul received the Zodiac's Halloween card, he received an anonymous tip that pointed out the similarities between the Zodiac's crimes and an unsolved murder in Riverside, California, the case of Sherry Jo Bates. Up until that point, it was believed that the Zodiac had only been active in the Bay Area. After receiving this tip, Paul Avery actually sidestepped police and went straight into investigating and wrote an article about the Bates case. Were the two connected? On October 30, 1966, an 18-year-old Sherry Jo Bates was a student at Riverside City College. She spent the evening at the campus library until it closed at 9 p.m., Neighbors reported hearing a scream from that area around 10 p.m. that night, and sadly, Bates was found dead from being stabbed the next morning just a short distance from the library. Notably, the wires in her Volkswagen distributor cap had been pulled out, and a man's Timex watch with a torn wristband was found nearby. The watch had stopped at exactly 1224, but police believe the attack happened earlier in the night. One month later, on November 29, 1966, identical type letters were mailed to the Riverside Police and the Riverside Press Enterprise. The letters were entitled, The Confession, and the writer claimed responsibility for Bates' murder. The writer confessed details about the crime that only the killer would know. The writer also gave a warning, Bates is not the first and will not be the last. As police were investigating Bates' case in December 1966, a poem was found carved into the bottom side of a desk in that very library Sherry was at that night. The poem was titled Sick of Living slash Unwilling to Die, and that poem's style and language and handwriting was very familiar. Paul Avery's decision to go public with a possible connection between the Zodiac and Bates case caused quite a stir. But he was not alone in his assumptions that the killer had acted outside of the Bay Area. Kristen said her dad had a hunch about the carving in the desk found at that library. So his, he wasn't sure if it was an employee of the school. He thought the man was probably a little older, not a 22-year-old kid. So maybe he was, you know, in maintenance or something and, and just did that one day. I don't know how that would tie to anybody else, but he just, that was one theory he had. So the person may have been employed. The poem was initialed with the letters R.H., and if you remember back to Michael Mojo's interview, he said Darlene mentioned the name Richard in connection with who shot them that night. That is an interesting coincidence to me. On March 3, 1971, five months after Paul Avery wrote the article linking the Zodiac to the Riverside murder, the Zodiac wrote a letter to the Los Angeles Times and credited the police, not Paul Avery, for discovering his, quote, Riverside activity. The connection between the Zodiac and Sherry Jo Bates is uncertain, but the similarities in the cases are eerie. But one thing is certain, Paul Avery wasn't afraid to get into the weeds and follow leads. Paul was a reporter, but he really took on the role of detective in this case. People's lives were at stake. Everyone was so eager to catch the Zodiac, and the pressures of it were felt at home for Kristen. In her opinion, the stresses had an effect on her parents' marriage. I was with that a lot, probably more than my sister was. So, I mean, I would sit down and, like I said, look, look at the cards and everything. 
maybe I got more scared um, when I when I mentioned it to my mom and Charlay. Uh, you know, I think we moved because of the zodiac. Both of them said that's not it. Uh, maybe there was more like going on. Uh, maybe more of the marital stuff going on that I just wasn't aware of. I think that the zodiac was icing on the cake, though. You know. I think we all know that sometimes it's hard to leave your work at work. Residual stress can follow you home, especially in a case like the Zodiac, where people were living in fear. Kristen even said that there were rumors that her dad was involved in it somehow. And um, that's when I found out that people thought dad was the Zodiac himself and the Golden State Killer. You didn't know that? Oh yeah, that was a rumor going You'll find it online somewhere. We now know that the Golden State Killer was recently caught and that Paul Avery wasn't the Zodiac, just a darn good reporter who did his best to cover and catch the evasive killer. This is really just a testament to how badly people wanted this case to be solved and the serial killer to be caught. People wanted resolution and closure. Paul investigated that possible connection to the Bates case in Riverside, but let's quickly go over another possible victim of the Zodiac. Once again, Paul interviewed and reported about another victim and her possible encounter with him. On March 22, 1970, Kathleen Johns was in her car driving west on Highway 132 near Modesto, California. She was on the way to visit her mom. Kathleen was pregnant at the time and had her 10-month-old daughter with her. She was cruising along when she noticed a car behind her began honking and flashing its headlights at her. She pulled over and the man in the car parked up behind her. Anyone getting flashbacks from the first two crimes? Anyone? Because I definitely am. The man said that her right wheel was wobbling and offered to tighten the lug nuts, so she said, sure. After he was done, the man drove off. Kathleen started up her car and pulled back onto the highway, but the wheel almost immediately came off her car. That same man pulled back around and offered to give her a ride to the nearest gas station. Kathleen says, okay, and she and her daughter climbed into his car. But as the ride progressed, Kathleen got fearful. She looked out the window to see that they were passing several gas stations, but the man didn't stop. When Kathleen would ask why he wasn't stopping, he would change the subject. This went on for an hour and a half. He drove up and down through back roads. Finally, Kathleen saw an opportunity to escape and jumped out of the car with her daughter as he stopped at an intersection. They went and hid in a field, and she said the driver came out and tried searching for her, but eventually drove off. Kathleen and her daughter survived the abduction, and police later found her car gutted and torched. When she went to the police station, she looked up and noticed a police sketch of Paul Stein's killer. The man looked familiar, and Kathleen said that that was the man who had abducted her and her daughter that night. A couple months later, in a letter to the Chronicle postmarked July 24, 1970, the Zodiac took credit for Kathleen John's abduction. Another possible Zodiac victim is Donna Lass. On March 22, 1971, one year after the Kathleen John's abduction, yet another postcard was sent to Paul Avery. The postcard was made from a collage of ads and magazine lettering, and it featured a scene from Forest Pines condominiums. It had the words Sierra Club and Sought Victim 12. The Zodiac's cross circle symbol was in the place of the return address and in the lower section of the postcard. They connected this to an unsolved case, Donna Lass, 25, who worked as a nurse at a hotel and casino in Lake Tahoe. On September 6, 1970, she worked till 2 a.m. 
Later that day, Donna's employer and landlord both received strange phone calls from an unidentified man. He said that Donna had left town because of a family emergency, but this wasn't true. There was no family emergency and Donna has never been found. The evidence suggests that she was abducted after arriving at her apartment. No definitive evidence has ever been able to connect Donna Lass to the Zodiac except that postcard mailed to Paul Avery. Many, including myself, really got a feel for this case after David Fincher's film Zodiac came out in 2007. Kristen liked Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal of her father, but wants to set the record straight about what the film didn't get right about her dad. I think they got right just about everything, except there was one scene that just made me so angry. Uh, it was on the houseboat, and I don't know if somebody, could, I think um, the, uh, the, the uh, writer of the story, the uh, uh, cartoonist had come by, and dad had some, you know, whiskey in front of him, drugs, and uh, it was so dark, you barely see in the scene, and curtains were all drawn. Dad didn't have any curtains, you know. There was no curtains. He lived on a, a houseboat in Sausalito. You know, these huge glass windows, no curtains at all. You know, yeah, Dad got depressed. There's depression in the family. I realized that, but he he would always fake it pretty well. Now, I think at the time when he started writing the book, he wanted to do it with Dad, and Dad just wasn't interested. That's, that's the, what I heard. In a promo poster I saw for the Zodiac film, it read, there's more than one way to lose your life to a killer. But Paul was not ruined by the Zodiac. He actually went on to cover the highly publicized Patty Hearst kidnapping. Paul was a very talented writer, and Kristen said he wanted to move on from the Zodiac case after a while. It wasn't a daily story. There was nothing more for him to investigate. He had no more interest in it at all. I mean, that was it. After the Lake Tahoe card, the Zodiac remained quiet for three years. On January 29, 1974, the Chronicle received a letter from the Zodiac. He bizarrely praised The Exorcist as the best satirical comedy that he had ever seen and concluded the letter with the new score, Me, 37, San Francisco Police Department, 0. But by that time, Paul Avery was reporting on other stories. Paul passed in 2000, and to date, the Zodiac case remains one of America's biggest unsolved cases and mysteries. But many still wonder, who was the Zodiac? In 2002, the San Francisco police were able to extract a partial DNA profile from a Zodiac letter from saliva on a stamp. This allowed them to be able to disqualify potential suspects. And there are a few suspects, so let's go over some of the most popular ones. One of the most commonly talked about is Arthur Lee Allen. He died in 1992, but Robert Graysmith's book Zodiac points to him as the Zodiac Killer. Graysmith said that several police detectives described Allen as the most likely suspect. Allen was supposedly in the vicinity of the Lake Berryessa attack, and later that night he came home covered in blood with a bloody knife in his car. Allen's friend Donald Cheney reportedly told police that Allen had told him about his desire to kill people. He mentioned the name Zodiac before the name was known by the public, and he was said to be fixated on young children and angry at women. Michael Majot, who survived the 1969 attack, identified Allen as the man who shot him, saying, that's him, that's the man who shot me. Allen owned and wore a Zodiac brand watch and lived just minutes away from Darlene Farron and where the killings took place. 
But most of the evidence against Allen is circumstantial, and DNA from saliva on stamps and envelopes from the Zodiac letter didn't match Allen. Also, handwriting experts said that Allen's handwriting didn't even come close to the Zodiac's, nor did his prints match the prints found at the crime scene. So that's a big question mark, and personally, I have never been fully convinced that it was Allen. The next suspect is Gary Francis Post. In October 2021, a team of over 40 cold case investigators called the Case Breakers claimed to have identified the Zodiac as Gary Post. He died in 2018, but the team uncovered evidence and photos from Post in a dark room that implicated him in the killings. But Riverside Police said that their case was again largely circumstantial. The next suspect is Lawrence Kane, and he checks a lot of boxes for me, and we'll see what you think. Lawrence Kane was a man who had been in an accident and had brain damage that resulted in a doctor saying that he had impulse control issues. Kathleen Johns, the woman who was abducted with her child by the Zodiac, picked Lawrence Kane out of a photo lineup. He did closely resemble the police sketch of the Zodiac as well. Darlene Farron's sister also said that it was Kane that was following her sister in the weeks leading up to the crime. Also, one of those police officers, Don Falk, who possibly saw the Zodiac the night of the Paul Stein murder, also said that Kane closely resembled the man that he saw that evening. Kane also lived a super short distance from where it's believed Paul Stein picked up the killer that night. In fact, police have said that Kane was in the same area as many of the victims in crimes. In 1970, Kane moved to South Lake Tahoe, the same area that Donna Lass went missing from. And get this, he actually worked at the very same hotel as Donna. There isn't much evidence I could find that his DNA was tested against the DNA they have from the stamp, but Kane's handwriting was compared to the Zodiac's and was found inconclusive. The last suspect that we're going to touch on is Earl Van Best Jr., whose biological son Gary insists that he is the Zodiac Killer. Gary wrote a book on it called The Most Dangerous Animal of All, and it was actually turned into an FX series. Earl Van Best Jr. had a unique connection to Paul Avery, actually, as Paul did a story on Earl's predatory relationship with Judy Chandler in the early 60s before the Zodiac killings began. Earl was 28 and Judy was only 14. She got pregnant with Gary at 15 and he was later given up for adoption. Earl Van Best Jr. went on to be in prison for statutory rape and other crimes and he died in 1984 in Mexico. One thing is that Earl does have a striking resemblance to the sketch photos of the Zodiac and Earl was in the San Francisco area during the times of the Zodiac crimes. If you're interested in Gary's evidence on his father being the Zodiac, I suggest checking out the documentary. It's got some pretty interesting information. Some of it adds up, but some of it really doesn't. So Gary suggests that maybe Earl Van Best Jr. had a grudge against Paul for covering him in such an unflattering light in the article, and maybe that's why he targeted Paul Avery in his correspondence. But overall, all these suspects are connected to different parts of different crimes. And these are just a few on the long list of people who have been looked into over the years. When I review these cases, something really sticks out to me. Cars. A criminal profile named Sharon Hagen said that she believes the Zodiac was a loner that spent a lot of time driving around. 
The first two crimes were couples in cars. The next couple was targeted at Lake Berryessa, and the Zodiac took the time to go right on their car. Paul Stein was targeted while driving his cab. Sherry Jo Bates' car was found with the wires in her distributor cap pulled out. Kathleen Johns and her baby were abducted after being pulled over after the Zodiac had messed with her tire. Was the Zodiac someone who maybe worked on cars, had a career in auto repair? The fact that every one of his crimes has that in common just makes me wonder. That criminal profile, Sharon Hagen, also made note that many of these crimes were committed on weekends or holidays, inferring that the Zodiac had a 9-to-5 job and probably lived a structured life. She believes that the root behind the Zodiac crimes were essentially attention and notoriety. He wanted to be known. Why did he target couples and then randomly Paul Stein? She believes the Zodiac wanted to be famous in San Francisco. Specifically, he wanted a reporter like Paul Avery to report on him. She also believes that the Zodiac could have bowed out after his final letter and went on to live a conventional life. You can't say the same for the innocent victims that he targeted and for those people and their families. I feel so sorry for what they had to go through all these years, never getting resolution or justice. All in all, the Zodiac case was one of the first true crime cases that I became interested in, actually. And Kristen Avery was such a kind and insightful person to talk to, and I feel lucky to have been able to get to know her and her dad, Paul, through her. And Robert Downey Jr., if you are listening, Kristen and I would love the chance to chat with you about your portrayal of her dad in the film. So have your people call my people and let's set a time to talk. Now, my inquisitive listener, I ask you, who do you think the Zodiac Killer is? Do you believe he was one of the suspects I named or possibly someone else that police never investigated? Someone that was able to keep his secret for all these years. Maybe whoever did it took it to the grave. As always, make sure you're following along on TikTok and on YouTube, and I'll see you next episode. Until then, I'm Avery Ross.